0: Uh, a long time ago, uh, back in the days when the uh, Formula One Grand Prix was held in Adelaide before it got stolen by the Victorians like they do with everything, uh, my, uh, my stepfather and I used to go along uh, a few times. Now, neither of us was particularly interested in car racing. Uh, we didn't watch any of the others. Uh, but there was something quite impressive about seeing that happen up close, about being there uh, at the track. Uh, now, the biggest memory of all Uh, from those events and you'd know this if you've ever uh, been to the Clipsal 500 or more to the point if you've ever been anywhere near a car race is that they are incredibly loud. You don't even have to be there to know that. If you're even in the city uh, of Adelaide while the Clipsal 500 is going on you would just hear this constant buzz that's going on uh, in the background and uh, when we were at the track we would wear earplugs all through the day uh, just to try and protect ourselves a little bit. Now, as if that weren't enough noise that was happening there, uh, they also used to do or have the Air Force do a flyby uh, at the start of the day. Uh, it's not the actual one, that's just what you get when you Google Air Force flyby. Uh, but uh, they would do that as a bit of an extra display of that raw power, because they figure people who like big engines probably like big planes uh, as well. And let me tell you that if the, the race was loud... That was even louder. Uh, What would happen is the planes would zoom by overhead, you'd see them go, uh, and then following behind them some distance uh, was the wall of sound uh, that would then crash over you. But it's just entertaining. You know, it might be the Air Force, uh, but it was just there uh, to entertain the crowds. Now, it would be a very different thing, wouldn't it, if it were for real. Uh, My grandparents on my dad's side are both English, They were born and grew up in London during the Second World War. Uh, Now, eventually my grandmother, uh, she was in school at the time, was evacuated to the country uh, with her sisters uh, during the Blitz, but both of them used to be able to tell stories about the bombings uh, of London. Uh, They would tell you that, again, it was all about hearing those familiar sounds. They would hear the air raid sirens begin to blow. Uh, Then you would head for the shelter, uh, wherever it was, whether you had one... Uh, in your own property, or whether you'd go down, uh, as my grandmother did, to one of the underground train stations uh, to shelter. And then, uh, as they were huddled there together, they would hear the drone uh, of the engines of those planes as they came in uh, before the booms of the explosions would begin. Uh, now, it's a similar thing in one sense. Uh, it's noise, but it's not there for entertainment. Uh, it's terrifying. It's terrifying. Now, when we head into the book of Amos over the next few months, we need to uh, bear in mind the way that Amos starts, which you may have seen there in verse 2. We had those two verses from Amos read uh, in the middle of our Bible readings. They're on page 905 if you want to look at them. Uh, the Lord roars from Zion and thunders from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds dry up and the top of Carmel withers. Uh, the Lord roars. It's not a roar of celebration or of joy it's a roar of anger and the image is one of a an angry lion about to pounce and in the next few months we're going to hear israel systematically taken apart piece by piece this is a roar that you don't want to find yourself in the way of now amos is a pretty fearsome book And because of that, it's very important for us to be uh, ready to hear that. But most importantly, we need to be ready to hear the God that we're going to meet in these pages. So why don't we pray together as we begin? Father, we do thank you for your word. We do thank you that it is rich, that it is challenging, uh, Lord. But we do want to recognize uh, that sometimes it's hard for us to hear And so we pray that as we start to dig into Amos, uh, that you'll prepare our hearts to hear your voice and where necessary to hear your rebuke, that we might find that joy and salvation in your son. And we pray this, Father, in his name. Amen. Well, the book opens by telling us that we have here the words of Amos. That was there in verse 1. If you saw that, the words of Amos, one of the shepherds of Tekoa. Uh, The vision he saw concerning Israel two years before the earthquake when Uzziah was the king of Judah and Jeroboam son of Jehoash was king of Israel. Now that's just Amos's way of introducing the book. These are the words uh, of Amos but it's really a collection of a lot of different things that he's put together. So there are words that God had given him to speak, uh, there are visions which God had given him to describe uh, and there were promises that God had given him for the future to pass on to the people. Uh, Really, the book of Amos, as we saw in that short video, is a way of pulling together his lifetime of ministry. Now, he starts by introducing the characters, which is an important thing to do in the beginning. Uh, If you watch any movie or any first episode of a TV show or read a book, you'll find that's the first thing that you have to do, is let people know uh, who's who. Uh, And so they bring out something of who's going to appear uh, and what we can expect. Now, first of all, there's Amos. Now, we know that at least in the context of this book, that Amos is going to be important because the book's named after him. Uh, But in himself, Amos is not described as being a particularly significant person, is he? He's a shepherd uh, from a place called Tekoa, uh, which is a fairly unimportant town a little way south of Jerusalem. He's not a leader of people. He's not someone who trained to do this kind of work. He didn't spend his time studying at prophet school before going to prophesy uh, to the kingdom. He looked after sheep. He certainly wasn't planning on getting a book of the Bible named after him. And he says as much uh, in chapter seven, when they start hassling and saying, of course, you're saying all of these kinds of things because you're just another one of those religious prophets. uh, He says to them, I was neither a prophet nor the son of a prophet. I was a shepherd. I also took care of sycamore fig trees, but the Lord took me from tending the flock and said to me, go prophesy to my people Israel. Right? Do you kind of get that? That's the tone of the book. Uh, I was looking after the sheep and the trees, but God said, go and start prophesying to Israel. They're the words of Amos, but more importantly, they're the words of God that he is speaking to his people. Uh, He doesn't get much choice in the matter. Now, he's the leading actor in his story. But the important thing to take out of that verse, uh, as Amos introduces himself and these other people, is to recognise that this is not just a made-up story. Right? We're all familiar with the idea of uh, older cultures, ancient cultures, having these kind of fables or myths that they taught uh, in order to illustrate particular things that were important to them uh, as a nation. This is real Amos puts himself into the context of real people. He gives the name of real figures who were around at the time. Uzziah was the king of Judah, which was the southern part of the nation of Israel. And Jeroboam II was king in the north, which gets called Israel in the book of Amos. When it says Israel, it just means that northern portion of the nation. Now, those words, those names don't mean a great deal to most of us, but they are real people. And they put this story into a real context. We know when and where Amos was. Both of those kings reigned in the middle part of the 8th century BC and we have evidence today of both of them and, uh, and what they were like. In fact, we've got some pictures here. Uh, first of all, this is Uzziah's tombstone uh, that you see there. Uh, his tombstone was, uh, was found near Jerusalem. It's been dug up. It's currently in a museum in Jerusalem. You can go and look at it. Uh, that was put in the place where this king that we read about here was buried. Uh, And then the next one, there's a couple of things there from Jeroboam II's reign. The first one on the left is a copper seal uh, about Jeroboam. The one on the right uh, is actually from the Assyrians. That's why it's a slightly different style, as you can see, uh, which uh, which talks about the interaction of the Assyrians with the nations around them at the time. Uh, It's really actually a bit of propaganda. It's telling us how much better the Assyrians are uh, than everybody else. So there you go. That's what propaganda leaflet drops looked like getting one of those dropped on you uh, in the uh, 8th century BC. But I put those there to help us remember we're dealing with real people, okay? These are not just made-up names for a story. Uh, Now, when we read the Old Testament, whether we're conscious of it or not, we often read it as though it were a piece of historical fiction, you know, some other story. Uh, Because the people that we're reading about are so far removed from us, both by language... Uh, but also by geography and by time, it doesn't always feel like they're real. But what we will see as we go on, we can both know that they were real, but more importantly, we can see that people haven't really changed that much since Amos' time. We've changed in our technology, but not in our hearts. And even more importantly, God hasn't changed at all. Now that's important for us to know and believe because if God hasn't changed at all then we know that the things God valued then are the same as the things that God values now. Now people often talk about the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament uh, as though they were different people uh, but they're not. Uh, But even if we don't consciously think in those terms uh, we often uh, think it Somewhere in the back, in in our subconscious, we think that God's mellowed. You know, in the Old Testament, he used to be all about wars and anger and all those kinds of things, but now he's just about love and friendship. Uh, But God is the same, and the God that we respond to in Jesus Christ is the same God who carried or who gave his message to Amos. And so as we read Amos, we need to know that and believe that this is God speaking to us. Now, circumstances are different, uh, but the God we meet will be the same. So how do we process what God is saying, knowing that it was to them in their context and we live in a different context? How do we process what God is saying and how do we take something away? Uh, Now, again, if we're going to be honest, to many of us, the Old Testament is a bit of a mystery, Now the Old Testament has a lot of narrative and action. There are some books that are just full of great stories uh, and so we tend to pick up on those stories when we're talking about the Old Testament. And so particularly if you've ever been to kids' church or been a part of teaching kids' church, you'd know that those are the stories we see the most often. We talk about Moses and the Exodus, you know, we all know that one. Uh, We talk about David and Goliath because that makes another great story. Or we talk about Samson, you know, the strong man, Uh, And There's a few others here and there that we hear over and over again. But to many of us, the idea that the Old Testament is telling, and in fact, not just the Old Testament, but the whole of the Bible is telling one big story is something of a new idea. But that's exactly what it is. The Bible is one big story, one big account of God dealing with his people. And it's designed to be read in understanding that whole big story. And what that means is that we can't just read Amos and work out what's happening in Amos unless we have at least some understanding of what that big story is. Uh, That would be like just opening a novel into the middle and reading a random page and expecting to understand everything that it's about. You could probably make up a story that it would fit into, but it wouldn't be the same as the story that the author is trying to tell. We need to understand the story God is trying to tell through His Word and then read it through that. So what do we have in the Old Testament? What is the Old Testament all about? Uh, Well, there's three main sections to the Old Testament. Uh, There are the history books, which deal with the history uh, of God and His creation. Uh, There are the wisdom books, like Job and Proverbs, uh, which uh, contain wisdom. You can see a pattern here. And there are the prophets which is the prophets. Didn't see that one coming. Now, Amos is one of the prophets. Uh, Now, the history books lay down God's big story. So that's from Genesis through to the end of 2 Chronicles. And the story that they tell is a story of, first of all, sin, which is the people's rejection of God's good rule over us. Uh, But then it follows with uh, God's determination to bring about a solution to the problem that we've created, right? So that's the big picture of the Old Testament. Now, we've got a couple of places to start digging into that. First of all, up there, we've got Genesis 3. Uh, Now, Genesis 3 is the famous story. It's another great uh, kids' church one of Adam and Eve and the snake and the fruit. Uh, And at the heart of Genesis 3 is the temptation that the snake holds up to Eve, which is to say, in effect, that you would be better off if you just pushed God to one side and decided to take ownership over your own life and your own destiny, right? That's the heart of sin. That's the big lie that Adam and Eve get sucked in. That life would be better if you put God to one side and took ownership over your own life and your own destiny. Now, that lie has been swallowed by countless millions today. The lie that says, you know better about what's good than God does. But, as Genesis 3 tells us, life doesn't end up better when we push God to one side. Adam and Eve find out that they're put out of the garden, they're put under the curse of death, and then worst of all, they're put out of their relationship with God. So pushing God out of the picture sounds appealing to many, but really what it does is it makes things much, much worse. That's what Genesis 3 introduces. That's the problem uh, of sin. Uh, But then God begins on his solution. Now, Genesis 12 is the first big step that he makes in introducing what the solution will be. Uh, Ultimately, it's leading us towards Jesus, but he begins it even there. That's where God makes his great promises to Abraham, which you might remember again from Sunday school or kids church, the three promises, land, descendants and blessing. Okay, you've got them up there. Genesis 12, verse 2 and 3, uh, God says to Abraham, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great. You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now, God repeats and develops those promises a couple more times uh, in the coming chapter, but that's the first place where they're introduced, uh, where we start to see the hope of what he's going to do to fix that problem. Now, if we know about Abraham, and if we know about the promises that God made to Abraham, we probably think about them, don't we, in terms of Israel, right? We think in terms of, well, God promised Abraham a place, that's the nation of Israel, He promised them descendants, that's the people of Israel, uh, and He promised them blessing, that means life would go pretty well for them in the land. Uh, but if That was all God was talking about then those promises fall in a heap because again when we remember we read the big story we get to the end of two chronicles and the land has been decimated by foreign invaders the temple has been destroyed and the people are scattered if not killed throughout the world God is promising much more than just the ancient nation of Israel the land is not just the promise of land is not just about physical dirt it's about having a place where you can enjoy the goodness of the presence of God all the time because that's where it began, right? That was the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve before Genesis 3. They had a place where they could enjoy the presence of God and that's where the story ends. In Revelation 21 and 22, we see the new Jerusalem come down, a new place where people are able to be in the presence of God and his son, uh, Jesus Christ. That's the one story. That's what the land Uh, is all about. Descendants aren't just about ancient Israel being a big nation, descendants are about that blessing that God has given them being something that is available to a multitude. Uh, So we saw in the video at the end of Amos's promise is the plan that God's kingdom will extend over the whole earth and people from everywhere will come in. Uh, And finally the blessing the blessing is about seeing people in that right relationship with God, responding to him and having that grace work itself out uh, in their world. So the promises don't just find their fulfilment in ancient Israel. They find their fulfilment in Jesus, not just Jesus in the first century, but in what Jesus is doing throughout the rest of God's history, what he's doing today, what he will do in the future. Right? One big story. That's what God promises to Abraham. That's what drives the rest of the Old Testament. But against those promises is the tension of the curse. Because God says that to Abraham as well. Whoever curses you, I will curse. Those who persist in rejecting God's plan, those who keep pushing him aside, those who reject his son, again, will get left out of that promise. Those are God's promises, that's the story of the Bible. Sadly, Israel's history from this point onwards is more or less a downhill slide. There's the odd little patch where it seems to be getting better, uh, but mostly what the Old Testament shows us is that we are not up to the task. We see the problem of sin, we see God's promise of hope, Uh, and then we just see over and over again that humanity is not up to the task. Every opportunity we get, every second chance, every third chance, every fourth chance, it doesn't really matter how many chances, uh, we get it wrong again and again, and so it keeps going downhill until with a final resounding crash at the end of history with the destruction of the temple, the exile of Israel, and we wonder how are those promises ever going to come true. But... They are still there. And that's where the prophets come in. That's where the prophets speak into that dismal history. Prophets like Amos tell us that even in the midst of human failure, God is still faithful. But he is also just. And he will not let rebellion go on forever. That's the story of our world. That's the story That Amos speaks into. That story of human failure and divine hope is the one that our New Testament, our Christian church, are built on. So we have Amos. Amos isn't anyone important, he's not a king, he's not a leader, he's not a priest, nothing like that, he's a farmer effectively, he's a shepherd and he looks after some trees but he's also a prophet. He's the one who brings God's word to people who don't want to hear. Now Amos speaks to people who are rich, right? This is something important because we often think uh, when we're reading the Bible that if uh, if their spiritual condition is poor, well then that's probably reflected in conditions being terrible in the land they live. But that's not true. Economically, Israel was at one of the highest points that they ever were. Uh, they were rich. They were secure. Uh, Both the Northern and the Southern Kingdom had about 40 years of stable government. Uh, They were comfortable. They were free to do more or less whatever they liked. Uh, It was a country that was very well off. It was a lot like we could say our country is, really. And so we can probably have some kind of empathy, some kind of understanding in thinking just how easy it would have been for the people of Israel to have thought that God was with them in everything that they did and that their material success was a sign that he was on their side. But then we see the beginning of Amos' message in verse 2. The Lord roars from Zion and thunders from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds dry up and the top of Carmel withers. I know this, this is one verse, this is a summary, uh, this is an introduction like an abstract. This is letting us know this is what Amos's message is going to be. Amos will not be warm fuzzies. The Lord roars like a lion from Zion. He thunders like a hurricane about to break upon them. Now, Zion in the Old Testament, that's how they often refer to the Temple Mount uh, in Jerusalem. It's the place where God came to meet with his people, where his people could come to him, uh, but importantly, where he could speak uh, and guide them. And now he rages at them. Now, this is terrifying. Now, it's strange because people in our culture love the idea of hearing from God. And if you go along to a Christian bookshop... Uh, you will find that you can buy countless books that will tell you on how you can hear uh, from God. They will, in fact, tell you the techniques that you need to deliver. Uh, This is a very real book I'm thinking of, uh, that if you follow these six, seven easy steps, they will tell you how to hear God's audible voice almost on demand telling you what you should do. Now, we love that idea. Those books become bestsellers because we think, well, God then becomes a kind of life coach for us you know, he's sort of cheering us on, he's encouraging us uh, as we go. Now, God does say a lot of encouraging things in his word, but we should be thinking here something more like Sinai, more like Exodus 19, which we heard read early on, more like the way God spoke to those people then. We've got a couple of verses up there. Uh, from Exodus 19 verse 16. Try and put yourself in the shoes uh, or the sandals, I suppose, of those Israelites that you're there gathered uh, around the great mountain. And this is what happens. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain, a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. And Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace and the whole mountain trembled violently. This is the kind of message that Amos speaks. It's a God who roars and thunders, a God who calls people to give account for living self-absorbed lives. This God can be fearsome. In fact, so much so in Exodus 20, if you read the next chapter, the people say to Moses, look, you go and talk to him, uh, but we don't want anything to do with him. You go and carry that message for us. Now, our picture of God can often suit whatever we want from God. I think often our picture of God can be a God who is concerned about our investment plans uh, or our holiday Uh, ideas or our career progression and those are the things that we want to hear God talk about Uh, we want him to support encourage maybe give us a a tip or two along the way uh, to help our relationships uh, be even better and sometimes God's word does give us that kind of gentle guidance but sometimes God roars in judgment sometimes God rebukes us and sometimes that's what we need to hear Amos is one of those times the Lord roars from Zion, thunders from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds dry up, and the top of Carmel withers. His word here is like a withering fire. It burns the grass, it scorches the mountain tops. When you hear that voice, you'd better be ready. You prepare yourself. This is that moment in the courtroom when the defendant is told to stand up and get ready to uh, face that judgment, to hear the consequences of the choices that they have made. Now we're going to start to really dig into what Amos has to say next week. But as we do begin to dig into what Amos has to say, we need to be in that right headspace because it's going to be hard. Amos isn't speaking to us, he's speaking to Israel So we do need to be careful about how we hear him, but we're not completely out of the picture. Their God is our God, and our world isn't that far from theirs. We need to hear this and hear how seriously God takes sin, how even the very devout religious people can harbour it in their hearts. The New Testament reading we had, the Pharisee and the tax collector from Luke chapter 18, is exactly that story, isn't it? A Pharisee walks in, a religious leader, someone who knows uh, the ways and the commands of God and he stands and proudly declares all the good that he has done uh, and waits for God to give him a pat on the back. The tax collector comes in knowing that he is a sinner and throws himself on God's mercy. We need to be like the tax collector. We need to be ready if we're going to hear God's voice and respond. Let's finish with a couple of questions for us to think about how we might respond uh, today and in the coming weeks. First of all, we need to ask ourselves the question, do we really want to hear from God? Do we actually want to hear God if this is the kind of thing that he's going to say to us? Are we willing to put our lives, our plans, our future under his control or are we just looking for a God who will be a spiritual advisor? someone who'll give us some advice here or there that we can either take or leave if we disagree with it. That's not how it works. If God's real, he's in charge and that leaves us with the option to either listen or to rebel. There's no fence to sit on, Uh, there are only two camps. And so if we're willing to listen, what do we want to hear? See, a great danger for Christians in first world countries can be that life is going so well overall that all we really want from God is congratulations. We want him to tell us what a good job we're doing, to pat us on the back and to keep providing for us the way that he has done uh, before. It's a challenge for us to be ready to hear from God and ready to hear whatever he might have to say. And the biggest danger is that we really think that we need to do so. We all like to think that we'd be ready. But in reality, I think most of us expect God should be telling someone else off and not us because we're not like that tax collector. So are we really ready to listen? Are we ready to hear? Are we ready to respond? Because the easiest thing in the world is to hear God's word and do absolutely nothing about it. Generation after generation of Israelite did that. That's exactly why they were in the position they were in Amos' day. So what will we do at Tea Tree Gully? Because to listen to God means to change the way that we live and align it to him. That's what Jesus said, isn't it? When he came, he kept saying that uh, anyone who wanted to know God needed to do that through him, needed to hear his voice, needed to respond to his voice. If you love me, you'll obey my commands. Come and follow me. Go and make disciples of all nations. Jesus called us to change our lives to fall in line with what he has done and to put our confidence, our hope, our expectation that God does have a solution to that problem of sin in his son, in his death on the cross for us. As we dig into Amos, as we start to unpack and open up uh, some of that message, we've put some studies together uh, to help us to do that, to help us get our hearts in the right place, to help us see how Uh, God is speaking into our world today. Uh, Our small groups are working through those. Uh, If you're not in a small group, you might like to grab one uh, or you might like to join a group if you haven't already. There are a lot of uh, options there. Uh, But that's the question to finish on. Are we ready to hear God's voice in rebuke and are we ready to obey? Let's pray. Father, we do, again, give you great thanks for your word but we again pray that you will prepare our hearts to hear you. Lord, we can be proud, we can be convinced of our own righteousness, we can be sure that the way that we live is more or less the way that you call us to live. We can be judgmental of others. Lord, help us to be humble, help us to hear what we need to hear, help us to hear how The death of your son on our behalf and his rising to new life places a claim over our whole lives that we might live them for you. And help us, Lord, over the coming weeks, months as we do that together to learn and see where you might lead us through this part of your word. And we pray all of it, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.